This morning we are um, beginning a new series. It's eight weeks long. There are nine messages because there's Holy Week in there. And we'll continue our series on Thursday night of that week. But we're going to uh, talk about the central fact of our faith, the event that the all of Scripture points to. Actually, it's because of the cross of Jesus Christ that we were able to receive new members into this congregation with them pledging themselves to Christ. It's because of the cross that we're able to baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Father and the Holy Spirit. It's all about the cross. And so this morning we begin our series in a place that perhaps seems a little random, but not at all, especially as you dig into the text. Paul's letter to the Galatians, the last chapter, chapter 6, beginning... In verse 11, Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is to those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I was eight years old when John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. It was a Friday, November 22, 1963. They say that you will remember, if you were old enough and conscious, uh, you'll always remember where you were, and that's true for me. They say you'll always remember what you were doing when you got the news, and that's true for me as well. A few weeks ago, I was reading the words of another guy who happened to be my same age, and he says this, what I remember most about that day were all of the images of people standing there in silence, weeping. One of them was my grandfather. Though he lived half a world away at the time, when he received the news, he broke down and wept. The president was so young. The prospect of a bright future was ahead of him and ahead of the country. He was in the prime of his life, and yet early in the afternoon, 12.30 Central Time, a lone gunman, at least it's thought, killed him. My grandfather wept. And yet, though my grandfather wept at the death of President Kennedy, there was a far more important death for a far younger man one afternoon, 1930 years earlier. 
Unlike John Kennedy's death, this death was not tragic, it was triumphant. It wasn't the end of an era, it was the beginning of an era. That's why September in September of 1963, weeks before John Kennedy was assassinated, my maternal grandfather began a series of sermons on that other death. And near the end of the series, he received word that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. You know what my grandfather did? He didn't do what some preachers might have done, and that was to take a week off from that series on the cross to preach about the death of John Kennedy and the loss of the vision for the world. He also didn't do what other preachers might have done, which was to ignore that death in Dallas. Instead, what my grandfather did was he incorporated the death of John Kennedy into this series on the cross. You see, my grandfather understood that the ultimate answer to man's problem is not found in the life of any president. It's found in the death of a Savior. My grandfather understood that the words of John Kennedy that he spoke at his inauguration nearly three years before were a complete lie. John Kennedy said this, quoting an Italian Renaissance philosopher, man is the measure of all things, and he can do all things if he wills. Now, my grandfather knew from just the 20th century that the, that is pure and unadulterated folly. My grandfather knew that there's only one event in human history that is the measure of all men and all women and all people. It's not the will of man. It's the will of God, perfectly and finally expressed in the cross. My grandfather knew that the cross speaks to capitalists and communists alike. He knew that the cross speaks to rich and poor alike. My grandfather knew that the cross speaks to wise men and fools. My grandfather knows that the cross speaks to people who are well and people who are sick. My grandfather knew that the cross of Jesus Christ speaks to every person at every moment in time in their lives. But then my grandfather understood one more thing. Not only did he understand that the cross speaks, he understands that the cross requires a response. That's my, why my grandfather never ceased preaching the cross. You know who his grandfather was? He is said to be the greatest English-speaking preacher of the 20th century. His name is D. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Not only was he a medical doctor, he was a doctor of theology. He preached for 30 years at the Westminster Cathedral in London. But it's not D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching. 
It's not his life that commands my attention today. What commands my attention today is the preaching of the greatest preacher in the last 20 centuries. And I want you to listen to what he says. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of Christ. By that cross, the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. Now, what would cause a man like Paul to say that? Do you hear what he's saying? In all of my life, there's just one thing that I will boast in, and it's the cross. Now, think of Paul. Here was a man who was lifted up to the third heaven. He said, I'm not going to boast about that. Here's a man who has a tremendous resume, and he says, I won't boast about that. Here's a man who has had complete exposure to Jesus Christ in the desert of Arabia, and he says, I'm not boasting in that. I'm only boasting in one thing, and that is the cross. How can he say that? How can Paul say that I will boast only in one thing? How can he say to the Corinthians, I've determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? How can he say that? There's only one way he can say that, and that is because he understands the greatness of the cross. And the question is, do you? And do I? And the answer is, we don't. But darn it, I want to. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the claim of the cross. Verse 11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. 1969, Dwight David Eisenhower, the 34th President of the United States, was laying on his deathbed at Walter Reed Army Hospital. He had congestive heart failure. He's in the last hours of his life, and you know what he does? He says to his attendant, call Billy. And his attendant knows who he's talking about, Billy Graham. So they call Billy Graham. Within hours, Billy Graham comes into the room. Before he gets there, he passes through all security, passes through all the hospital administration, and they all tell him the same thing. 30 minutes, that's it. The president's about ready to go. So Billy says, sure. He goes in expecting to see a man who's comatose. And he says, he looks just like he always does. He's in bed, but he smiles broadly. He says, hey, Billy, how are you? And for 30 minutes, we talk. And then I say to him, Mr. President, I need to go or they're going to kick me out. And the President of the United States, former President, says to me, ignore them. I've got a question for you. He said, Billy, will you tell me again how I can be sure that I'm getting to heaven? Billy said, I pulled out my Bible I pointed to the cross, and I said, Mr. President, as you know, it's not what you do that matters. It's what Jesus did on the cross. I spend about 10 minutes going through the cross again. And then I say to him, Mr. President, I have to go, or they're going to drag me out of here. And Eisenhower looks up at him, 
and says, thanks, Billy. Because of the cross, I'm ready to go to. Now, the Apostle Paul knew he was ready to go. For six chapters, he has been dictating a letter to a church that God began through his preaching. And yet this same church, within the matter of months, has begun to abandon the cross. It's a, cross, it's a church that began with a firm grasp of the cross, but now as a result of false teachers, they've lost a grip on the cross. So Paul, in response, does something that he rarely does. You know, Paul wrote 13 letters that are in the New Testament. And there are only three where he writes by his own hand. He writes two sentences to the Colossian church at the end of the letter. He writes two sentences to to the Thessalonians in his second letter. But you know what he writes to the Galatians? Eight sentences, eight of them, he writes at the end of his letter, and we've just read them. He writes this. See what large letters I use to write to you. What's that mean? Why? Why, why the size of the letters? Well, some have said it's, this is a sure sign that he has poor eyesight. That's his thorn in the flesh. That's the view that many have. Others say, no, it isn't really his eyesight. It's not the thorn in the flesh that he's referring to. It's the fact that he doesn't write very often. And so he writes with large letters, sloppier, larger than a regular scribe. You know, a scribe had to write very small because parchment was expensive. And so they wrote very elegantly, but very small. But I think there's another possibility. I think what Paul is saying when he says, see what large letters I write to you. What he means, I think, is that they're not very elegant. Neither am I. Large letters in that day didn't show a good outward appearance. Neither did Paul. In that day, large letters conveyed passion and conviction, and so did Paul's life. And so does the cross. The cross isn't elegant. It isn't striking an outward appearance, but it is the place where we understand the meaning of passion and conviction. So second, notice the conviction. Look at verse 13. For even though those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Do you see what Paul's talking about here? The Jews taught that as long as you were circumcised, you could believe anything you want, including anything about Jesus. And so when they came to these Gentile regions... They said unless a man was circumcised, he really wasn't part of the people of God. He had no standing with God. So what these Judaizers, they're called, were doing is they were saying, you may say you believe in Christ, you may even be baptized, but you know what, if you're not circumcised, you're not really assured of a standing with God. And so what they were doing was they were circumcising these Gentile converts. 
And by doing so, they were avoiding Jewish persecution. And Paul is ticked off. Why? Well, in chapter 3, he says, in the strongest words he ever uses, and I can't use them here because some of you would be offended. Here's the clean-up version in our English translation. Who has bewitched you? It's much more foul than that. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. How can you abandon the cross? You see, what Paul is saying is, if you're adding anything to the cross, you've lost it. If you're saying what Jesus did, plus what you did, what that is necessary, your works, unless you have both, you're lost. Paul is saying that is blarney. How could they do that? How could they abandon the cross? Well, it's easy. It all gets down to a matter of pride. It's always pride that causes us to abandon the cross. Think about this. What is it in your life that causes you to focus on you more than anything else? It's pride. What is it in you that causes you to base your standing now and in the future on what you do and what people think of you? It's pride. And Paul knows all about pride. Remember who he is? He is a Pharisee. He says in Philippians chapter 3, as to the law, blameless. He's the man who has a tremendous resume. For years, as a Jew, the cross of Jesus was a giant stumbling block. Because he knew what the Bible said. Cursed be the man who hangs on a tree. Don't tell me Jesus has anything to do with God. His crucifixion proves that he's a phony. As a Roman, to say that God's Messiah would die on the cross was total idiocy. But listen to what he says to a pagan king in Acts chapter 26. He says, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I did. Not only did I lock up many of the saints, but then when they were put to death, I voted against them. I mean, here is a man who hated the cross. Here is a man who lived against the cross. Here's a man who committed himself to the death of those who believe the cross, and yet now he says, I glory in only one thing, and that's the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but change gets my attention. You know something? I don't know if you know this, but if you're a chauvinist and you become a Christian, you'll become a Christian chauvinist. If you're a nut and you become a Christian, you'll become a nutty Christian, at least in the beginning. But when the Holy Spirit begins to work on you, you begin to see change. The Holy Spirit never leaves you where you are. So look at Paul. If ever there was a man who hated the cross, it's Paul. 
If ever the man who committed his life to standing against the cross, it's Paul. And yet now he says, there's only one thing in all of my life, in all of existence, that I glory in. And that's the, Christ of Je- and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has worked on him. And ladies and gentlemen, you can mark this down, you can study it, you can doubt me on this, but I guarantee I'm right. There's one place where God does his work, and that's always at the cross. That's where the Holy Spirit does his work, at the cross. You know, I have a friend who says, the problem with most Christians is they stay at the cross long enough to be saved, but not long enough to be loved. And he's right. I mean, for 13 weeks, we preached on forgiveness. We could have spent, if the truth be told, we could have spent years on forgiveness. Because there's only one place where life-changing forgiveness is received and begins to flow out of you, and that's the cross. There's only one place where bitterness begins to be swallowed up in forgiveness, and that's the cross. If you want to forgive other people, you got to go to the cross and see where Jesus, in all of His glory and all of His greatness, has forgiven you. There's only one place where resentment gives way to forgiveness, and that's at the cross. There's only one place where God has said, I will meet you, and that's the cross. That's the place where God changes us. That's Paul's conviction. That's Jesus' conviction. Isn't Jesus the one that said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. And then third, notice the conclusion. And I've got four points, so don't get hopeful. (laughs) Third point, conclusion. Verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, what's Paul mean? What's he mean when he says, Through the cross, by the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What's he talking about? Well, this week I think I got some help from somebody far brighter than me. You say, well, that could be a lot of people. You're right. Jonathan Edwards, arguably the greatest mind this nation has ever produced. He once wrote a book called The Nature of True Virtue. Now listen to what he says in this book. He says, if you don't embrace the gospel, if you don't embrace the gospel of grace, sealed and delivered by the cross, if you hold that in any way you're saved by your own efforts, then everything you've ever done in your life has been for yourself. He says, if you've never embraced the work of the cross, then you've never helped a proverbial little old lady across the street for her sake or for God's sake. You did it for your sake. Everything you've ever done has been so that you could look in the mirror and feel good about yourself and think about how great you are. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. There's only one way out of that self-imposed prison. There's only one way to escape the endless cycle of selfishness and trying to get your self-worth based on what you do, and that's to look to the cross. What he is saying, Jonathan Edwards and the Apostle Paul, is the reason the world is crucified to me, the reason I'm crucified to the world, because it doesn't matter. I've gained in Christ all that I need. Therefore, what I give to others is not so that I can get from them because I've got all I need in Christ. Think of this. If God left His throne in heaven to come and die on a cross to do for you what you could never do for yourself, do you know what that means? When you really get that, when you really embrace that, what it means is you don't have to help other people because you have to. You help them because you want to. You don't have to do it out of duty. You can do it out of desire. No longer are you suffering from the tyranny of selfishness because now you've discovered that no matter what you've done, Jesus has paid it all. You see, Jonathan Edwards is saying what the Apostle Paul is saying, true virtue by definition is selfless, and the only time we get selfless is when we're lost in the work of Christ. True virtue issues not in duty, but in delight. And the only place to see that, and the only place to get that, is in the greatness of the cross. And you got to linger there. Fourth and finally, let's look at the creation. Look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. One of the famous statements that Paul makes is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, He is a new creation. You see, what Paul is saying is, not that the temptations of the flesh are gone. Not that your sin has been totally eradicated. What he's saying is, because of the cross, we now have a totally new identity. We may not see it, but God sees it. And by God's grace, by staying at the cross, having the work of the Holy Spirit done in us, we'll begin to see it more and more in us. No longer are we identified by our sin, we're identified by Him. In fact, the Bible says, Paul says, you are now in Christ And the purpose of your Christian life is to grow up more and more in Him. And there's only one place where that growth occurs. It's at the cross. You know the problem with most presentations of the gospel? They only start at the cross. Are you saved? Are you saved from the coming wrath of God? Come to the cross. Do you know Christ if you were to die at this moment? I mean, you've heard this, right? And it's true. But the cross isn't just somewhere to come once. 
Paul says no, no, a thousand times no. The cross is the place to come daily and stay. The cross isn't just the place where God's wrath has been satisfied. It's true, it has, but that's not all the cross is. The cross isn't just the place where God saves you. It is, but that's not all He does there. The cross isn't just the place where He saved you from all of your doings and your earnings and all of your selfishness. It is, but He does more than that. The cross is the place where He crucifies the allurements of the world to you. The cross is the place where you begin to be freed from the temptations of the flesh. The cross is the place where as you stay, you find your identity has changed. No longer is your identity found in what you do or what people think of you. It's found in what Jesus has done. He loves you. He's incredibly fond of you. (laughs) There is no one who loves you like He does. And where do you see that at the cross when you're injured by someone? Where do you get free of that? At the cross, because he's been injured more. You don't go to the cross once. You've got to go to the cross all the time, because the cross is where the Holy Spirit does his work. Let me end with an illustration. Years ago, I read this story, and I've never forgotten it. I think it perfectly portrays the greatness of the cross to change a life. In the early 1970s, there was a famine in Congo. They were only about 10 years old, the nation of Congo. And so the Red Cross mobilized a worldwide effort. They needed money and they needed supplies. So one day in country, at one of the distribution centers, the Red Cross gets this box. And one of the women there who were Red Cross officials, looked at the box, and its postmark was two weeks earlier from Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi to be exact. And so she called one of her associates over, and they opened the box, and at the top of the box, underneath the lid, was a letter. And the man said this, Dear Red Cross, several years ago, Jesus found me at the cross. And I found out that the longer I stayed at the cross, the more I found myself changed. When I heard of the need, I determined not only to give money, and you'll find that in this box, but I determined to give bandages to help heal my wounded brothers or sisters. And when they unpacked the box, they found hundreds and hundreds of long white strips that can be used for bandages. Do you know where those white strips came from? They came from the sheets that this man used to wear to elevate himself, to make him one of the supreme masters of the KKK. He took the same sheets that he used to wear to hate his brothers and sisters 
and he cut them into strips, and he sent them to a place where everyone who's bandaged of their wounds is black. Now, what would cause the supreme leader of the KKK in Mississippi to love a nation of people he once hated? There's only one thing that would do it, and it's the cross. That's why D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he got the news about President Kennedy, he wept. But he didn't preach that death in life. He continued to preach the cross. Because D. Martin Lloyd-Jones knew that the greatest gift God has ever given you is the cross. There's nothing greater And that's why Paul says, far be it from me to boast in anything but the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May He, the Lord of the cross, be your boast too. Amen.